Well, this morning I have the privilege to continue what Ken started or what uh, Kyle started last week. Some of you are wondering, I'm going to talk about biblical covenants. He got to do the introduction message. Chris, you got the short end of the stick. Is that how that worked? He got the introduction message. How exciting it is. The what, the why, the how. Woohoo. Biblical covenants? Snooze fest. Some of you have already turned, tuned me out. Is this going to be like in seminary? Well, I have the great privilege to talk about the framework of eschatology, which is the biblical covenants. And I hope that at the end of this message, you will see the grandeur in the plan of God through the biblical covenants. I don't know if you realize this, but the Bible is the world's best-selling book. Do you realize it has over 100 million copies printed and sold every year? It tops the chart. And while it is one of the most read books in the world, I would guess that there are many who struggle to fully comprehend its message. They fail to grasp the complete story. See, when I was a kid, there was a show that I loved. Leave it to Beaver. Do I have any Leave it to Beaver fans? Yeah, notice, no one under 30. Yeah, oh, there's one. One under 30. Thank you. Yeah, I'm kind of dating myself, aren't I? Leave it to Beaver. In fact, I, I thought you needed to be reminded. There they are. The Cleavers from Leave it to Beaver. I don't know how June always, no matter where she was in the house, she was in her dress with pearls, vacuuming, cooking at the same time, and saying, Beaver, eat your vegetables. Right? She was like the perfect mom. I mean, if you watch the show, it was a show about a normal, everyday family. In fact, Ward Cleaver would finish his breakfast. He would give his wife June a kiss. He would be off for work, grab his briefcase. They actually wore suits and took briefcases to work back then. While Wally and his younger brother, and what did we call the younger brother? Come on, those of you beaverheads, what, what do we call the younger brother? The beave, right? The beaver, the beave. We called them the beave. What would they be doing? Getting into trouble. First five minutes of the episode would display their perfect family life free of any problems or complications. It was the ideal family. And then, <laughs> Wally, dun dun dun. He would talk the beave into borrowing the family car which, of course, the beef would eventually give into, which, of course, would eventually result in what? A dent. And not just any dent, but a big dent on the side of the car. See, this perfect family life, free of any crisis, was over. And for the next 25 minutes of each episode, what would happen? Wally and the beef would do what? Figure out how to fix the problem. And we would laugh. We would look at it and enjoy it and go, this is hilarious. Look what they're doing to try to fix the dent. I would never do Well, actually, maybe I would try that. Trying to restore their family into a trouble-free state. This is a common storyline for many sitcoms. I love Lucy. Everybody loves Raymond and so on and so forth. In fact, this resembles the storyline of the Bible. I don't know if you've thought about this. The storyline of the Bible has four major parts. It starts with creation. Turn with me to Genesis 1.26. Let's look at the storyline of the Bible. This first major part of creation in Genesis 1.26 says this, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them, what's the word? Rule. It says, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And here we see God creates mankind to rule over the earth to rule over everything in it. 
And in the first two chapters of Genesis, man is living in a perfect, sin-free relationship with God, his creator, ruling as God's representative on earth. God ruling through man over his creation. Mankind is quite simply reigning in the garden. You see that? Reigning in the garden. And then, of course, we have the next major part. What is that? The fall. In chapter 3, sin enters into the picture. We know the story well. Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. And where mankind was once in perfect harmony with his creator, now is plunged into trouble, to pain, to suffering. And the wages of sin is what? Death. It's a result of sin. And so what does God do? Genesis 3, we see the cursing. Look at verse 24. Genesis 3, 24. It's right after the curses. So he, who's the he? It's God. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. God kicks them out. Relationship is broken. Now think about this with me. What is the whole rest of the Bible? What's the storyline? It's quite simply this. It's mankind attempting to get back right with God, to restore this relationship that sin has broken. And how do they do it? Through failed works, through empty religion. So what does God do? We have the next major element, the storyline of the Bible. Redemption. God provides the means of redemption just as long as you're a good moral person and go to church at least three out of four weeks. Does that sound right to you? You just, just be a better person. Be moral and good. As long as you're better than that guy or that woman, then you'll get in, right? Is that the message of the Bible? No, in fact, what is the path of redemption? Jesus Christ comes from heaven to earth, fully God, fully man, lives a perfect life, dies in our place. Three days later, is resurrected from the grave to show that God accepted his sacrifice in our place, took the punishment of our sin, and to show that he had life over death. And so it is through Christ, through faith in Christ, that we have redemption. And what man could never do, God did. Church, how do you feel about that? What do you think about that? What you and I could never do, no matter how good of a Christian you are, no matter how moral you are, no matter how many times you come to church or you're baptized or you take the Lord's table or whatever it is you think, no matter how much you do, guess what? You sin over and over and over again. It fails. No matter how much you try to get that dent out, it just won't get fixed. And what man could never do, God did now, so far, of these three major plot lines of the story of the Bible, all three of them have taken place. What's the, the fourth and final? Restoration. Now, turn with me all the way back to Revelation 22. I don't know about you, but when I was in high school and college, I couldn't stand to read. I would read the first chapter... And then what would I do? Go to the end. Absolutely. Let's look at the end. What does Revelation 22.5 say? And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will what? What does it say? They will reign 
for a short time until they blow it, what does it say? Forever and ever. The Bible begins with mankind ruling in the garden. Sin plunges us into despair and death and the penalty of all of that. And if we jump forward to the end of the Bible, what does the final chapter say? God will restore us through Christ, through faith in Christ. And we will again reign for all of eternity in heaven. See, end times events serve as the culmination of God's redemptive purposes. It's the defeat of evil. It's a great story. The bad guy loses. God's kingdom is established on earth. And for the Christian, this is a glorious end. Amen? It's a glorious end. From reigning in the garden to the fall to the eventual restoration where we will reign with Christ. And this is really a fulfillment of, of Revelation 3.21. Revelation 3.21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. Even Paul said this in 2 Timothy 2.12, If we endure, we will also reign with him. Time and time again, this is promised that one day, through this redemption of Christ and restoration, we will reign again. Now, our series is entitled, Your Kingdom Come. It's focusing on these final events leading up to Revelation 22.5, all the events right before that and then going on into eternity. But before we can truly understand why and how those end-time events take place, it's very helpful for us to look at this period between Genesis 3 and Revelation 22 to see how God ultimately restores us back into a right and sin-free relationship with Himself, ushering us into eternity. So to do this, I want to take a brief look at biblical covenants. Now, what did I say? Brief. Brief. You realize they write books on this. Systematic theologies have whole chapters on this. So thank you so much for allowing me in an hour and a half this morning to do a brief... Wait, what did I say? Come on, you guys are used to that, right? No, Chris Davis said I had it end on time, so I'm going to do that. Thank you, Chris. You remind me. Chris, where are you? Remind me. There he is. He's in the back. Now think about this. What is the best way to put together a complicated puzzle? For those of you who have studied end times, is it complicated? And sometimes you're reading it and studying it and looking at it and you're puzzled. It's a puzzle, you're puzzled, the whole thing's just puzzling. Do I have any puzzle putter-togethers? Wait, what do we call you, puzzle putter-togethers? I make a living communicating. There we go, a couple puzzle makers, what do we call you? Lovers, lovers of puzzles, thank you, there we go. When you're putting together a puzzle, do you simply just grab whatever is in front of you, whatever is closest, put it together, start putting it together, get out your, your husband's hammer and start putting the pieces together? What does that do? Insanity. Right? Some of you are like, oh, no, no, well, Chris, there's, there's a picture on the box, right? And so you're looking at the picture. Sometimes the puzzle is so complicated, you're like, is this upside down? I, I, I can't even tell what is. Is that a horse? Oh, no, that's a tree. Wait a minute. Is that right? It's complicated. Even looking at the photo, you, you look at the photo and you look at all those little infinitely tiny pieces. And what do you go? Eh, next year. <laughs> I'm going to go watch Leave it to Beaver. No. Puzzle lovers, where do you begin? The frame. Why? Because once you get the edges... Once you establish the framework, what happens? You slowly begin to add piece by piece by piece. And some of you are looking at this series of end times and you're going, oh, please, no. This is going to hurt my head. And it might. But biblical covenants, what is it? It serves as the framework to understanding end times events. And as Kyle explained last week, we use this term eschatology. Eschatos, 
simply means last or end or final. Ology, the study of. When you put eschatos and ology together, you get what? Say it with me. That was not saying it with me. Let's try it again. Okay, now everybody, eschatology, thank you. Don't you feel smarter just saying that word? It's what I learned in seminary. If you're not smart, just use big words. Eschatology, the study of end times, of last things. And eschatology is typically concerned with all of these end times, specifically the events leading up to the return of Christ, judgment, eternal state, all of those things. You've been given a handout this morning talking about our doctrine, and on the back it's got a chart of all of the events that we're going to cover. I'd encourage you to fold that up, put it in the back of your Bible, kind of like you have one for Romans. Now that's going to be your summer one. And just bring it back, because every now and then we're going to use it up on the screen. We're going to show you what piece we're looking at. And hopefully I'll lay a a framework this morning and every Sunday for the next, I guess it's 10 weeks after today, we'll be putting pieces of that puzzle in and hopefully it will fill in and you'll see the picture as God intended it. God's end time program is determined and arranged by these God-given covenants. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. God's end times program is determined and arranged by these God-given covenants. So as a result, the way we interpret these covenants will then determine our understanding of end times. Now some of you, the the minute I said we're going to be studying covenants, some of you are thinking, oh, wait a minute, does that mean we're studying covenantal theology? So for the three of you that wondered that, the answer is no. We're not going to be studying covenantal theology. But if you're interested in that, come back on June 24th, because my co-laborer, Kyle, will be covering that on June 24th. Covenant theology, really talking about how we interpret Scripture and the different systems with which we interpret end times. So I do want to start in a place that's helpful with a definition. What is a covenant? Now, when you and I hear the word covenant, what do you typically think of first? Maybe an agreement, a business agreement. What's the most common place that you hear the word covenant used besides church? <laughs> at a wedding. You ever heard the word covenant at a wedding? Why do we use the word covenant at a wedding? You have a bride and a groom from two families coming together before God, the pastor, family and friends. And what are they doing? What God has put together, let no man what? tear apart. They are promising, they are making a solemn oath to be joined together in holy matrimony. That's typically how we think of this word covenant. In fact, this is a helpful definition from Paul Benwear, because this word is used approximately 300 times in the Bible, the word covenant. Paul Benwear describes it as this and defines it as this. This is a general definition for a covenant. In Old Testament times, a covenant was an agreement between two parties that bound them together with common interests and responsibilities. So covenants were a regular part of the Old Testament times and Old Testament culture. In fact, just a couple examples, Abraham and Abimelech, what did they do? They entered into a covenant concerning the well at Beersheba in Genesis 21-22. Who owns the well, how we use it, what happens, who gets the sheep. They entered into a promise, a a covenant, an oath, and they each had responsibilities about that well. In fact, in those days, even nations made covenant agreements with one another, which is why God expressly forbid Israel from making covenants with certain nations. In fact, we know that from Exodus 23.23. What were the nations that God said don't make a covenant promise with? It's all the Ittites. Remember all the Ittites? The Jebusites, the Canaanites, the Hebusites, the Parasites. Wait a minute, that didn't sound right. (laughs) Not Parasites. Kyle, what is it? Yes, thank you. All the Ites. They're all in there. Why did God not want them to enter into a covenant with those foreign nations? Because what happened when Israel 
join forces with other nations. They begin to adopt the way they thought about the world. They begin to adopt their gods. They begin to commingle and co-marry and give their wives and their sons to each other. And pretty soon they begin to dress the same way and talk the same way. And they begin crucifying their children, or not crucifying, but killing them and burning them to Baal and all of those hideous, horrible things. And God knew if you join with them, if you enter into covenant with them, you will become like them and you will stop worshiping me. And I don't know if you know this, but God is a jealous God. And he hates it when we love things more than him. So it was not entirely unusual that God would enter into a a covenant with Abraham, with his descendants. But we must understand that covenants were very serious matters where the reputation of the covenant maker was at stake. Again, to bring it back to today, how does the world view covenants, promises, oaths? How are they viewed in business? Kept until what? Something else better comes along. How are they treated in marriage? This is okay as long as it works for me. Sometimes when we think of a covenant, it's hard for us not to lay that over our understanding of God. Is God that way? Will God ever, ever, ever break a covenant? Can God lie? Can God deceive? No. Because He is good and faithful. When God says, I will, then we can trust that it will happen. It's very comforting to me. Now, there's two general types of covenants that we have to understand. I'm going to go through this quickly. There's a conditional covenant and an unconditional covenant. Now, the Mosaic covenant given at Mount Sinai is an example of a conditional covenant. How many commandments did God give Moses on Mount Sinai? Twelve? That was a test. How many? Ten. Ten on how many tablets? This is a Bible church, right? You just haven't had your coffee yet? How many tablets, church? Two tablets. Why do we call the Mosaic Covenant given from God through Moses to the nation of Israel conditional? Because if we took the time to go through it and look at all of these in Exodus 19, we would see a series of, if you do this, then. If you do this, then I, God, will do this. If you do this, then, oh, God will do this. If, then, if, then, if, then. What is that? That's a condition. I will bless you if you obey, but if you disobey, what's going to happen? I will curse you. So just like at Deuteronomy 28, you see a whole list of blessings and cursings, and it is amazing how specific they are. What was the Mosaic conditional covenant given for? It, was, it wasn't given to save them. It was given to show them rules, who God is, and how to live in light of who God was. And so the Mosaic Covenant was a conditional covenant. And since it was made specifically for Israel, it does not apply to us in the church age today. I'm not really going to talk much more about it. You can study that on your own. But the second type of covenant is what we call an unconditional covenant. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. You see, through God's grace, He made promises to bring about certain blessings for those that He made the covenant with. God made these covenants at His own initiative, and they depend solely upon him for their accomplishment. Hebrews 6, 13, we're going to look at that text a little bit later. In fact, this covenant is typically expressed in the scriptures when we observe God saying, not if then, but what? I will. I will do this. I will do this. Not because of you, not because someone's twisting my arm. I will do this because I choose to do it. I will. It implies certainty. These covenants are literal, they're detailed, they're concrete promises. We don't take them figuratively or allegorically like, oh, well, the tree doesn't really mean a tree, and it's also talking about something else. Unless there's something in the grammar or the context and the structure, the context of the rest of Scripture, the history, we take it literally. And it's eternal. Genesis 17, 7, this covenant is called... Eternal. Eternal. It's an 
everlasting covenants. This unconditional covenants were made with Israel as a covenantal people, and they're unconditional. There's no if. In fact, in Acts 3, 25 to 26, Peter even appeals to the Abrahamic covenant, speaking to the men of Israel. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it for us. Acts 3, 25 says, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you, returning every one of you from your wicked ways. So even Peter is appealing to the Abrahamic covenant in the New Testament. It's unconditional. Now, some of you are saying, well, Chris, I've looked at this covenant before, and it seems to me that there are conditions. And you're right. God will bring to completion the promises he has made. He will do it. But it should be understood that there are many blessings that are attached to these covenants that are conditioned upon the response of those who God made the covenant with. But any of these conditional elements refer not to fulfillment. They talk about enjoyment. And I'm going to explain that as I work my way through this. So we're not talking about fulfillment. The only conditional aspect is to enjoy the promise. But God will do it. Let me just give you one example just to make this point. The Palestinian covenant, God assured Israel of permanent ownership of the land of Canaan, the land surrounding Jerusalem. But occupation and enjoyment of the land required obedience. Does Israel occupy the land today? All of the land today? No. Is Israel enjoying the land today? No. Israel had partial ownership under Joshua, under King Solomon. If you go back and look at those places in Scripture in Joshua 11 and 1 Kings 4, you'll see that that was probably the closest in the Old Testament that Israel had to occupying the land. Did they get rid of all the nations during those times? No. In fact, even under Joshua's time, they still had to go in and and kill more of the nations to get them out. And what did they end up doing? Did they finally do that? They had peace, but there were still nations living. Same thing with Solomon. They never had the land as theirs. And it's the same as today. But it will happen. Because God will make it happen. And so I want to tell you, this is really my purpose this morning. These four main unconditional covenants, we're going to look at the Abrahamic covenant predominantly and then the other sub-covenants. There's no way I could cover all of this in one message. In fact, last time I taught this, I broke it up into two, maybe three messages. So this morning, I want to focus on the main covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Some of you are already praising in being thankful that we're not covering it all. But this Abrahamic covenant becomes the foundation for the other three. And so hopefully at the end I'll have time to kind of explain in summary fashion the other three. But I want to focus predominantly on the Abrahamic covenant. So these four covenants provide the framework for God's dealings with Israel. And because we believe these four covenants are unconditional and literal And we also believe they guarantee the four following promises. So just kind of, I have this on your handout as well if you don't get these. But this is what you're going to see throughout this whole series. A national future for Israel. If we take these covenants, face value, literally, unconditionally, there will be a national future for Israel. There are many in the church today who say because Israel dropped the ball, because they failed Yahweh because of their sin, that God was done with them, and in fact, the church replaced Israel. We call that replacement theology. Kyle's going to talk about that on June 24th. There are some even here in our church that hold that view. But if we understand these covenants literally, it is impossible to say that the church replaced Israel. And so we understand that there is a biblical distinction, there was, there is, and there will be, between Israel and the church. Secondly, the regathering of Israel to the land. Thirdly, a spiritual regeneration of Israel. Do Orthodox Jews worship Yahweh? What do you think? 
Do they? Answer, yes. Do they worship Christ as their Messiah? Answer, no. So when someone who is from the seed of Abraham, Jewish by descent and nationality, when they repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ as Messiah, what are they called? A Messianic Jew. Why? To clarify that they have taken Christ as their Messiah. Most Jews do not believe that Christ is their Messiah. And so if we understand these covenants and we take them literally and unconditionally, then we understand there will be a spiritual regeneration of Israel in the future. And that's important. We're going to talk more about that later. And then lastly, the millennial earthly rule of Christ over Israel on the throne of David. So as we study these covenants, recognize God is good. God is faithful to not only provide for Israel, his chosen people, but also through these covenants, he's provided a way for you and for me to be redeemed, to have eternal life through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these promises are guaranteed. Why? Because God is a faithful covenant keeper. Amen? I know we believe that. And while you may feel a little bit like Wally and the Beeb, maybe there's someone here even this morning, it doesn't feel like God's in control. It doesn't feel like God is good. It doesn't feel like God's sovereign over my life. I have not one dent. I have many dents in my life right now. And nothing I do can fix it. And I hope for you this morning that as you hear and, and read and as we work through God's plan and His sovereign purposes and you see His goodness and His faithfulness, that that would draw you to Him. That you would say, I, I don't know that God, but I want to know that God. I don't have that hope, but I want that hope. And that's my hope and prayer for you this morning. Christ alone has the power to redeem us and ultimately restore us to God. Well, let's look at the Abrahamic covenant. Turn with me to Genesis 12. That was introduction. Genesis 12. Don't worry, I'm going fast now. Genesis 12, what does it say? Starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant, it's not only in Genesis 12, it's in a number of other places as well. You've got all those texts on your handout. I'll let you look those up later. But I want to talk about the importance of this covenant. You see, this covenant that God made with Abraham, think about this is one of the most important scriptures in the whole Bible. These three verses is one of the most important revelations of scripture. It provides the key to the entire Old Testament and it reaches its fulfillment in the New Testament. And it's important because it details to us how God plans to save people and to restore all things. Again, think about this. Wally and Beaver, they got the dent, right? For 25 minutes, we're watching them trying every which way. They're going to paint it. They're, they're going to buff it. They're going to take it to, to, you know, the Wally's got a friend, and, and, and he's got a garage, and his dad has a hammer. Oh, let's take it to him. He'll fix it. But what's one thing that Wally and the Beaver know for sure they cannot do? Take that car back to whom? <laughs> dad. Ward is not going to be happy. We get that. Mankind is stuck trying to, to, to figure out how to work their way back into God's good grace through empty religion, through good deeds, through communion, all the things that I talked about early, earlier. And ultimately, how are they doing? How are we doing, mankind, womankind? Failing. We're failing. The reason why this Abrahamic covenant is so important is, is it's God's plan of hope. What about its provisions? Well, this, this promise 
makes three promises in this covenant. Three great promises. There's a personal promise, there's a national promise, and there's a universal promise. Let's look at this personal promise. These are the personal promises to Abram. What does it say? Now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to land which I will show you. In verse 2, I will make you, who's the you? That's Abraham. I will make you, Abraham. At this time, God is still calling him Abram. I will make you a great nation. And then what? I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. Notice all the times it says, I will, I will, I will. There's no if then. I will do this. I will do this. Look over at Genesis 17 where this is repeated, this covenant is repeated a number of times in the book of Genesis. Genesis 17, verse 4, where it's repeated again to Abraham. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. It's amazing. He promises for them, for Abraham, to become a great nation. All of the physical descendants of Abraham are what we call the nation of Israel today. And this is what we refer to as the seed portion of the covenant. The seed portion of the covenant. What else is the personal promise? Well, there's promise of blessing, isn't there? God is going to bless Abraham. There's promise of a great name. When we were living and ministering in Albania, we had so many Muslim Albanian friends. And whenever we got together, whenever I wanted to try to evangelize my Muslim Albanian friends, particularly the ones who were practicing and knew, whether they were Bektashi or Sunni, it didn't matter. I would typically start with Abraham. Why? Because even Muslims revere and know Abraham. Anywhere you go in the world, people know who Abraham is. Because Abraham's name was made, what? Great. Why is that happening? Because God has made it happen. And that's part of this personal promise to Abraham. What about a multitude of nations? What he says in 17.4, I will make a multitude of nations. How many sons did Abraham have? Through Hagar, Ishmael, through Sarah, who? Isaac. So through Isaac, we have what? Israelites. Who came out of Ishmael? It's another one of the ites, the Ishmaelites. Many nations will come from you. God promised it. Genesis 25, 9. So there's personal promises to Abraham. That's the first part of this, or the provision of this covenant. But then secondly, there's national promises to Israel. Abraham's descendants would be a great nation and have permanent ownership of the land of Canaan. And he says that in Genesis 12, 7, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And it's also repeated in 17, 4, Genesis 17, 4. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You will be the multitude of, of nations. And then over in verse 8, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings. All, part, some, is that what he says? What does all mean here? All. All. All the land of Canaan for a partial possession. You'll have it for a couple hundred years and then it will be given back to the nations. No, what does it say? Everlasting. Everlasting. Interestingly enough, these blessings were also passed down and repeated to both Isaac and Jacob. We don't have time to look there. But it was repeated to Isaac in Genesis 26. And it was repeated to Jacob in Genesis 48. Now when you think of national blessing, here's something I want you to consider. What does it say in verse 3? I will bless those who what? Bless you. And to those who curse you, what does it say? I will curse. Now, can you possibly conceive 
of a situation where being cursed by God would work out profitably for you? Think about that. To be under the curse of God, what does that mean? It's not roses and butterflies, kids. Wrath, pain, suffering, earth opening up, swallowing you, boom. Fiery serpents. I mean, just think about all the times when God cursed Israel. (laughs) It brought repentance through pain. It's never good to be cursed. But he says, I will bless those who bless you. And what? Curse. God is saying this. If you go against God's chosen people, God will go against you. Did you get that? If you go against Abraham and his descendants, guess what? God will go against you. Now, what is the significance of our president moving the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? That just happened last month. Why is that so significant? So significant. Because by moving the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, you know what President Trump and America is saying? Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Yay! What? Okay, Chris, so what? Who doesn't want that to happen? All of the Arab nations, all of the Palestinians. Why? Because they want that land. That's their land, their holy sites. So when the U.S. moves our embassy to Jerusalem, we are essentially saying, Israel, we are with you. It's amazing. Think about the implications of this part of the Abrahamic covenant with what President Trump just did. Because if America stands with Israel, then according to this covenant promise, what will God do to America? It's not rocket science. Bless us. Now the question is how? I mean, let's get to the good stuff. How will he bless me? Is it money? Is it car? Will will my bald head start growing hair again? Tell me, how will I be blessed? I don't know. I hope that didn't disappoint you. I don't know. I don't know how God's going to bless America. All I know is I know God, and I know he's a faithful covenant keeper. I know he says that if you bless Abraham and his descendants, I will bless you, period. This coincides with the 70th anniversary of the nation of Israel. You recognize Israel only became a nation in 1948, 70 years ago. In fact, it wasn't even until the 1967, during the Six-Day War, that Israel recovered East Jerusalem from Jordan. It wasn't even until 1967 that they took part of Jerusalem back. It's an amazing story. In fact, I've got a map here for you. The map on the left shows the biblical promised land that was promised. These passages right here are the passages. Can anybody see that? That is really, like, I'm having a hard time seeing it, and I'm standing right here. But these are, that's the map that God has promised to Israel. What is the map on the right? It shows current day Israel. You notice the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, there's parts north of the Sea of Galilee that still have not been claimed. The Golan Heights, Israel occupied. It's fascinating how these covenant promises affect right now. There's a personal aspect, a personal promise to Abraham. There's a national promise to Israel. It looks like at the last of these provisions, there is a universal promise. A universal promise. Back to Genesis 12, it says, All the families of the earth will be blessed. All. They were all to be blessed through this covenant. Turn with me over to Galatians 3, 6. There's so many passages we could read to make this point. I just want to give you one. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. And it says this. Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, 
be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, what is Paul quoting? The Abrahamic covenant. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer for as many as are under the works of the law are under curse. And then he goes on to talk about that. See, through the Abrahamic covenant, even though it was made with Abraham and his physical descendants, what we know as the, Jew, the Jewish nation or Israel, God was not abandoning the non-Jews or the Gentiles. Now, how do you know if you're a Jew or a Gentile? Because of your parents, because of your heritage. And I'm guessing that most of us here today are Gentiles, non-Jews. I'm just, that's, that would be my guess. See, this part of this universal promise includes us to have the opportunity to receive His Son as Lord and Savior. And this is the blessing aspect. Now you're thinking about this, Chris, why is this a blessing to you and I? We're not going to get into it at length, but what is the Davidic covenant promise? Through the seed of David, one would come who would redeem us. And so if you look over at Matthew 1.1, what do you find? Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, who doesn't love reading genealogies when you're reading your yearly Bible program, right? Oh, yay, I'm to the section of the Bible with genealogies. Please, put a gun to my head. Make this end, right? That's what you think. Why? Because it's a genealogy. What's the significance of a genealogy in the Bible? Why are they throughout the Scriptures? Well, here's why. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1. how does the New Testament begin? The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of whom? The son of Abraham. Why is that important? Because God is keeping a record of how he keeps his promises. And so when he says, through you I'm going to bless all of the nations, this is what he means. Through your genealogy, through your seed will come David. And through the seed of David will come a man named Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. It's beautiful to think about how God is keeping his promises and blessing us through this. And so God obligates himself to bless three parties. He blesses Abraham, he blesses the nation of Israel, and he also blesses the Gentile peoples as God brings them into His covenant by grace through faith in Christ. So just a simpler way to remember these three provisions is simply to think of it this way. It's land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. He's promising land. It's the land, Canaan, promised land. He's, he's promising seed, which is through Israel would come Christ. And he's also promising blessing, which is redemption and restoration. Now let's look at the character of this covenant. All right, and my screen has frozen. So, Jacob, you have to take over. Let's look at the character. The character of this covenant. First of all, it's permanent, it's eternal. Again, Genesis 17, 7 calls it an everlasting covenant. Everlasting is the Hebrew word olam. Simply means in perpetuity. When is the last time you've ever said perpetuity? That is a great word. We would translate that without end. And so in Hebrew, this is possibly the strongest Hebrew word that has the idea of everlasting, without end, going and going and going and going and going. Therefore, the nation of Israel must exist forever as a nation in relationship with God. You can look at Psalm 105, verses 9 and 10. It's another passage that talks about this. So the character of this covenant, it's permanent. Secondly, it's unconditional. Again, how many times does God say, I will, I will, I will? Now, some of you Bible heads out there, you notice that there was an imperative in the very first verse. What was the imperative? What was it? If I tell my wife, hey, go get me ice cream, what's the imperative? Go. 
Do you see that in this text? Yeah. God is saying, Abraham, go forth from your country to the land that I'm going to show you. There are some who would say, see, it's, it's, it's not unconditional, it's conditional. It's, it's if you go, then I will. Well, I would agree that, that even if we look at this as a condition, what would have happened if Abraham had not gone? I don't know. What, am I a prophet? You're looking at me like I got all the answers. What would he have done? I don't know. God would have figured it out because this is God's plan. The reality is he did go. He did go. And just to remind you, this story is not about man. It's not about man's, oh, we we fell and we made a mistake and we're just trying to get right with God. This is a story about God. Amen? About his plan and his sovereign purposes. This is about God's sovereign determination to bless Abraham, Israel, and the Gentile nations. So I think that with that aspect of conditionality that go, the rest of the covenant is really unconditional. And then there is a literal element to this. We don't spiritualize it. And again, Kyle's going to talk more about this on June 24th. Well, what about the next one, the fulfillment? This covenant has been literally but only partially fulfilled. What are some of the ways it has been fulfilled? Well, God did make Abraham's name great. In fact, he was prospered by God. If we had the time, Ken did this a little while ago. He walked through Abraham's life. God prospered and protected him and cared for him. God provided a son through Sarah. Remember, she was barren, through which the Jewish nation has grown from. He was a channel of blessing to others. Everywhere Abraham went, prosperity came. He was the Old Testament version of a rabbit's foot, minus the whole luck part. (laughs) Because God blessed him. And of course, the Gentiles have been blessed through Abraham's seed. Now, what are some of the ways that it's still yet to be fulfilled? Does Israel currently possess and fully enjoy the land of Canaan today? No. In fact, I got to go with my family to Israel in 2008. The, very, the second to last day, we were doing some shopping at this popular tourist place. I can see it. Our bus was parked there. We went shopping. We came back, got on the bus. The next day, we flew back home. Three days later, I'm watching the news watching live, or it wasn't live, it was a recording of a Palestinian man got into a tractor and started running people over, killing them. And if you've been to Israel, they make everyone serve in the military for two years. So there's all these young people running around with rifles. In fact, it kind of reminded me of Texas. It's like all these people running around armed. And that's what happened is one of these armed people ran over there and stopped him. Is Israel enjoying peace? No. But they will. So we say it's partially fulfilled, but not fully fulfilled. The present existence of the state of Israel in the land today doesn't represent a complete fulfillment, but it certainly stresses the literal permanent validity of the Abrahamic covenant. And also, has the nation of Israel been fully spiritually restored? We already talked about that. No. So if God has brought to pass many of the provisions, there's no reason to think that he won't bring them all to full fulfillment in his perfect timing and plan. Well, let's look at the last, the implications. And there's two. The first implication is because the Abrahamic covenant is literal and unconditional, it guarantees the personal or permanent existence of Israel as a nation and Israel's permanent ownership of the land. Secondly, it also guarantees the salvation and security of all who place their faith in Christ as Redeemer. Turn with me back to Hebrews 6. Maybe this will be the the final text that we look at this morning. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, it says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Again, quoting from Genesis 22, 17. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise... For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. Think about that. God has an unchangeable purpose in this covenant. The unchangeableness 
of his purpose interposed with an oath, verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus is entered is a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. See, the writer of Hebrews finds his confident hope of salvation based on what he can do? No. His confident hope of salvation is based on God's covenant with Abraham, even though Israel had already rejected God up until this point, or or at least Christ. Again, Hebrews was written around A.D. 60, probably A.D. 65. This is way after the Jewish nation had rejected Christ. And if this covenant was conditional, Israel would forfeit its blessings. The writer of Hebrews would not be writing this and saying these things. But thankfully, this covenant rests on the goodness and faithfulness of our great God. Well, we don't have time. You can show that last chart, the four biblical covenants chart. We don't have time to get in even to review those three because I am going to keep my promise and end, strive to end on time this morning. The Davidic covenant, the new covenant, the Palestinian covenant, all expand and develop on those three aspects as you see in the chart. The Palestinian is the land covenant. The Davidic is the seed covenant, part of the covenant. And the new covenant is the blessing aspect of the covenant. If you look on the back of your handout, you've got another chart that just shows the timeline of all these covenants just so you can see when they happen. And it's just, I just like charts. I'm, I'm a visual learner. So I hope that would help you and encourage you. But this morning, we took a very quick look at the framework of eschatology, looking at the biblical covenants and particularly the Abrahamic covenant. And aren't you thankful that these covenants are unconditional, that they're not dependent upon our morality or human ability? Because if it was up to you and me to get the dents out of the car, what would we be left with? Hopelessness. That would be a very long sitcom. Over and over and over, ending, ending, failed attempt after failed attempt. But God, in His sovereign goodness, has initiated the Abrahamic covenant and every single one of these sub-covenants. They will come true. Why? Because He is faithful. He's faithful. Redemption and restoration with God are possible through faith alone in Christ alone. So I just want to encourage you to take some time this week and to think about this truth because someday we as Christians will reign in heaven with Christ for all of eternity. Think about that. Adam and Eve reigned in the garden. We were plunged into sin, but guess what? Someday, just think of that timeline. God will bring us back and we will reign with him for all of eternity. Why? Because through Israel, God set a plan in motion to rescue you and to rescue me. And I hope that this truth will motivate us to gratitude. Wow, God, thanks for doing what I could never do. To worship. I praise you. All the songs we sang, Psalm 113 that we read this morning, praise the name of God for his faithfulness and his covenant goodness. To prayer. Are you praying for Israel? Pray for Israel, pray for us, pray for our president that we would stand with Israel in obedience. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your faithfulness because really the covenants are an expression of your goodness. It's an expression of your faithfulness. You determined to bless us. You said, I will, and you will. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, that if there is anyone here this morning that does not have that steadfast hope that the writer of Hebrews talked about, they don't have confidence for the things to come. They don't know what's around the corner, but maybe they live in fear. Lord God, would you draw them to yourself? Would you open their eyes to see their need for Christ as Savior? And for those of us who have already professed our faith in Christ, Lord, would you get us excited as we think about how you have, from the very beginning, initiated this plan through this covenant, this promise. 
to not only take care of your chosen people, Israel, but to bless us all through Abraham and through his descendants. We honor you, we praise you, and we worship you. It's in the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.